Section 35 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 9. Part 1. The Indefinite Approximation of Two Loving Carts. A Serious Illness. Progress of Conrad's Suit to My Sister. Aunt Mary's Letter. First Rumors of War with Prussia. Sequel of the Schleswig-Holstein War. The Poor Parlors and Negotiations Leading to the Austro-Prussian War. Arguments with my father and aunt about war. New Year's Day, 1866. Conrad and Lily engaged. My father's toast. War visibly approaching. Hopes and fears. Recriminations and reciprocal provocations. Prussia occupies Holstein. The army of the Bund mobilized. War declared. Manifestos of the sovereigns and generals. Brought nearer, ever nearer. I have found out that this capacity of approximation of loving hearts belongs to the class of things of which divisibility is an example. Things which have no limits. One might have believed that a particle might have become so small already that nothing smaller could be conceived, and yet it is susceptible of division into two halves. And so one might think that two hearts might be already so fused together that a more intimate union could not be possible, and yet some external influence acts, and the atoms, the two hearts, embrace and interpenetrate each other still more firmly and closer, ever closer. This was the effect of Laurie's sufficiently tasteless April fooling, and such was the effect of another external event which happened soon after, that is, a violent nervous fever which attacked me and laid me on a sickbed for six weeks. It was indeed a sad event, and yet how fruitful it was in happy recollections for me, and how powerful in its influence on the process sketched above. I mean, the bringing nearer and nearer of to so closely attached hearts, whether it was the fear of losing me, which made me still dearer to my husband, or whether it was that his love had merely become more noticeable to me by his behavior as sick nurse. In short, during this nervous fever, and after it, I still more and still more surely felt that I was beloved than before. I was also truly afraid of dying, First, because it would have given me horrible pain to lose a life which seemed to me so rich in beauty and happiness, and to leave my dear ones. Frederick, with whom I wished so much to grow to old age. Rudolph, whom I wished so much to train up to manhood. And secondly, too, not in respect to myself, but with regard to Frederick, the thought of death was horrible to me because I knew as well as one can know anything that the pain of laying me in the grave would be, to the bereaved one, well-nigh intolerable. No, no, people who are happy, and people who are beloved by those they hold dear, cannot feel any contempt for death. The chief ingredient in the latter is contempt for life. On my sickbed, where sickness buzzed around me with its deadly power, as the warrior on the battlefield hears the buzz of those bullets around him, I was able to enter perfectly into the feelings of those soldiers who love their lives 
and who know that their death will plunge hearts they love into despair. There is but one thing, said Frederick in reply to me when I communicated this thought to him, in which the soldier has the advantage over the fever patient, the consciousness of duty fulfilled. Still, I agree with you in this, to die with indifference, to die with joy, as we are on all hands told to do, is what no happy man can do. Only those could who were exposed in former times to all the ills of life, or those who have nothing left to lose in a peaceful existence, or such as can only free their brethren from shame and an intolerable yoke by their own death. When the danger was over, how I enjoyed my recovery, my new birth. That was a feast for both of us, like the happiness of our reunion after the Schleswig-Holstein War, but still different. Then the joy came with a single stroke, and here little by little. And besides, since that time we were closer to each other, ever closer. My father had visited me daily during my illness, and shown much concern. But for all that I knew that he would not have taken my death to heart overwhelmingly. He was much more attached to his two younger daughters than to me, and the dearest of all to him was Otto. I had become to some extent estranged from him by my two marriages, and particularly by the second, and perhaps also by my totally different way of thinking. When I was completely recovered, which was in the middle of June, he removed to Grumitz, and gave me a warm invitation to come to him there with my little Rudolph. But I preferred, since Frederick was prevented from leaving the city by his duties, to take my country holiday quite close to Vienna, where my husband could visit me daily and so I hired a summer lodging at Heatsing. My sisters, still under Aunt Mary's protection, traveled to Marienbad. In her last letter from Prague, Lily wrote to me as follows, amongst other matters, I must confess to you that Cousin Conrad begins to be by no means displeasing to me. During several cotillions I was in the humor to have said yes, if he had put the important question, but he omitted to take the decisive step at the right moment. When it was settled that we were to leave the city, he did, it is true, make me an offer again, but then I had again an impulse to refuse. I have become so used to do this to poor Conrad that when he used the accustomed form to me, will you not now become my wife, Lily? My tongue replied quite automatically, I have no idea of doing so, but this time I added, ask me again in six months. That means that I am going to examine my heart during the summer. If I long after him in his absence, if the thought of him, which now follows me almost uninterruptedly day and night, does not quit me when I am at Marienbad, if neither there nor in the ensuing shooting season any other man succeeds in making an impression on me, why then the perseverance of my obstinate cousin will have prevailed. Aunt Mary wrote to me about the same time. This happens to be the only letter of hers which I have kept. My dear child, this has been a fatiguing winter campaign. I shall be not a little glad when Rosa and Lily have found partners. Found they have, plenty of them, for as you know each has refused, in the course of the carnival, half a dozen offers, not counting the perennial Conrad. Now the same drudgery is to begin again at Marienbad. I should like to have gone to Grumitz to spend some time, above all things, or to you, and instead of this I am obliged to play over again the tiresome and thankless part of chaperone to these pleasure-seeking girls. I am very glad to hear that you are quite well again. Now that the danger is over, I may say that we were in great trouble. Your husband used for some time to write us such despairing letters, 
Every moment he was in fear of seeing you die. But let us thank God that it was not destined so to be. The novena which you kept at the Ursulines for your recovery also perhaps helped to preserve you. The Almighty designed to spare you for your little Rudy. Kiss the dear little boy and tell him to keep hard at his learning. I send him with this a couple of little books, The Pious Child and His Guardian Angel, a charming story, and Our Country's Heroes, a collection of war sketches for boys. A taste for such things cannot be instilled too early into the young. Your brother Otto, for instance, was not five years old when I used to tell him about Alexander the Great and Caesar and other famous conquerors, and it is a real pleasure to see what a spirit he has now for everything heroic. I have heard that you prefer to remain for the summer in the neighborhood of Vienna, instead of going to Grumitz. You are quite wrong there. The air of Grumitz would suit you much better than that dusty heatsing, and poor Papa will be quite bored all alone. Probably it is on your husband's account that you will not go away, but it seems to me that the duty of a daughter also should not be quite neglected. Tilling, too, could surely come to Grimmitz for a day sometimes. To be so very much together is not altogether good for married folks. Trust my experience of life. I have noticed that the best marriages are those in which the couples are not always sitting, prosing together, but allow each other a little latitude. Now goodbye. Spare yourself, so as not to get a relapse, and think again about heatsing. May heaven preserve you and your Rudy. This is the constant prayer of your affectionate Aunt Mary. P.S. Your husband has, I know, relatives in Prussia. Happily, he is not so arrogant as his countrymen. So ask him what they are saying there about the political situation. It is surely very grave. This letter of my aunt made me reflect again that there was a political situation. During all this time, I had not troubled myself about anything of the sort. I had, it is true, read a good deal both before and after my illness, as usual, daily and weekly papers, reviews and books, but the leading articles in the journals remained unnoticed. Since I no longer debated with myself the anxious question, war or no war, the chatter about home and foreign politics possessed no interest for me. The postscript of the letter quoted above looked serious and it occurred to me to look up what I had neglected and inform myself about our present position. What does Aunt Mary mean by her expression threatening, you least arrogant among the Prussians? I asked my husband, as I gave him the letter to read. Is there then a political situation at the present time? There is one, as there is weather, always, more's a pity, and one is always as changeable and treacherous as the other. Well, tell me then, are they talking still about these complicated duchies? Have they not done with them yet? They are talking about them more than ever. They have not done with them in the least. The Schleswig-Holsteiners have now a great fancy to get free of the Prussians. The arrogant Prussians, we are called in the latest form of speech. Sooner Danish than Prussians, say they, repeating a signal given them by the central states. Do you know that the hackneyed Miramschlungen song is now sung with this variation? Schleswig-Holstein Stammverwand schmeißt die Prussen aus dem Land. And what has happened to the Augustenberg? Have they got him then? Oh, do not tell me, Frederick, do not tell me that they have not got him. It was on account of this, 
the only rightful heir for whom the poor countries oppressed by the Danes were longing so that the whole war had to be waged which might have cost me you. Leave me then at least the consolation that this indispensable Augustenberg has been reinstated in his rights and is reigning over the undivided duchies. I take my stand on this word undivided. It is an old historical right which has been assured to them for several centuries, and the foundation of which I had trouble enough in investigating. It is going badly with your historical rights, my poor Martha, said Frederick, laughing. No one says anything at all about Augustenburg now, except himself and his protests and manifestos. From this time I began again to look into the political complications, and found out as follows. Absolutely nothing had really been settled or recognized, in spite of the protocol signed at the time of the Peace of Vienna. Since that, the Schleswig-Holstein question had been brought into all sorts of stages, but now was debated more than ever. The Augustenburg and the Oldenburg had made haste since the abdication which had taken place on the part of Lagusberg to make reclamation before the assembly of the Bund, and Lauenburg was eagerly desirous to be incorporated in the kingdom of Prussia. No one knows exactly what the Allies were going to try to do with conquered provinces. Each of these two powers attributed to the other a design of overreaching the other. End of section 35